Good morning. Good to see everybody here. Good to get together to worship the Lord, sing together, look in His Word. Let's pray before we look into God's Word. Father, we thank you for this time of the service. We thank you for being led in worship and those who have the musical talents to lead us. Pray, Lord, you're, uh, just that you are pleased with what we are offering to you. And we thank you for all that you give us. And Lord, now we ask that you would help us to gain insights from your word to really understand the meaning you have for us and then to use it in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> now today we're going to look at a promise of God to the one who is victorious. You know, we've been in the book of Revelation these last weeks. And you know, the Revelation is a book about things that are going to happen toward the end of this present age. The present age started with Christ coming, and it's going to end with Christ coming back. You know, the one who gave his life on the cross, who rose from the dead, he's going to come back and extinguish all evil. He's going to set up a kingdom that is going to be, that's going to last forever, and it's going to be complete righteousness, and he will rule over it, and we will all, all who enter in, because we have come to Christ in repentance, asking his forgiveness, trusting in his son's death to pay for our sins, realizing that there's no way we could have uh, earned our way to heaven, and then we will be able to live with Christ forever in his everlasting kingdom. But one part of the book of Revelation is a group of letters sent by... <clears throat> God to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is, is uh, dictating these letters to the Apostle John, and these letters are to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And these seven churches are in present-day Western Turkey, or, you know, they were. And these letters are very helpful for churches. They were helpful for churches back then, of course, because Christ sent them directly to those seven churches. And they're very helpful for us because they were written to churches, and, of course, we are a church. They dealt with a lot of the same issues that we deal with today because, you know, people are people, right? Now, we're in the days of the Roman Empire back in the first century, into the first century. And it's this time... In the Roman Empire, because it was a long-lasting empire, <clears throat> it was at this time that the imperial cult was, was forming and was taking form and was starting to be, you know, impressed upon people. That's where you make the, the emperor God, a god. <clears throat> and so when that happens... It's supposed to bring everybody together and give all their allegiance to the state. You don't need God outside of the emperor. You worship the emperor, and so you just bow down to the state. No one else. And then that's when Christians get persecuted because they have an allegiance outside of the state. And you could even see that today, that these dictators don't want people to have allegiances outside the state. Now, in this letter that we're going to look at this morning, there are seven letters to seven churches. It's going to be 
a letter to the city, well, the church in the city of Pergamum. Now, the church in Pergamum was doing fantastic in one area, I mean, way above average, but in another area, it was starting to wade into dangerous waters. And this area, this dangerous area that I'm talking about, will hit close to home because of our culture, our situation. But I want you to look with me as I read just the very opening of this letter, the beginning of verse 12 in Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> we'll be in Revelation chapter 2 this morning from 12 to 17. But here's the very beginning of the letter. This is from Jesus Christ. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write. So he's telling John the Apostle, this is what I want you to write to this church. Um, the angel, we, I've explained this before, but the angel, the word angel is messenger. And so Bible scholars, most Bible scholars think that it's a person in the church who has a leadership position and he's the one that's going to take this message from the Apostle John to the church in Pergamum <clears throat> as a message from Christ. So really, it's a human messenger with a heavenly message. But now look how Christ identifies himself to this church in the rest of verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write... These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. <clears throat> In each letter, Christ describes himself, you know, with some kind of description, and it changes for each letter, and it has to do with what he's going to tell that church. So this is Christ's description of himself, and they're all different descriptions, but they're all true of Christ, of course. <clears throat> the different aspects of his power. Him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, the double-edged sword was a symbol of Roman justice. Rome carried the double-edged sword. You did not go against the Roman government. Jesus is identifying himself as the one who holds the ultimate double-edged sword. He is the one who brings true, ultimate justice. He is the ultimate judge who wields absolute power. You know, earthly rulers can give themselves very impressive titles, and they do. We've seen that throughout history. And many earthly rulers throughout history have exercised impressive amount of earthly power and authority. Many times it's evil. But Jesus Christ is the one who has the ultimate double-edged sword, which will demolish every other earthly sword or power. And he will come out the complete victor, and his sword will make the difference. So Jesus wants these Christians in Pergamum to realize that even though there are rulers on earth who have a lot of authority, no authority on earth can even begin to compare with the authority and the power of Jesus Christ, their Savior and King. He has all power. 
Now, having said that, having said that Jesus' authority goes way beyond any earthly authority that we've ever seen or ever will see, you know, someone may ask, but what good is it that Jesus has the ultimate authority when those with lesser authority, these, these tyrants, are allowed to use their power to hurt others, allowed to use their power to, you know, for evil, for selfishness, to live like kings at others' expenses? Well, I think that's a good question. What good is it if earthly rulers with much less power than Christ are allowed to rule over others with their evil intentions, especially God's children? And I want to look at that in a minute. But first, to this church in Pergamum, Christ has this glowing praise for something that they were very good at, something that they had just, you know, went off the charts good at. And it's in verse 13. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lies. So, you know, we talk about earthly rulers wielding power. And what good is it if God's power is so much better when they get to do whatever they want? And here it is again, because Jesus is commending these people in Pergamum for staying true to him in very, very rough times. He says they live where Satan has his throne. And when you talk about thrones, you're talking about authority, authority to make rules, authority to carry out, you know, what you want. That means Satan has a lot of authority there in Pergamum, in that that area. He's very powerful. And it had to do with that imperial cult that we were talking about, where everyone was to bow to the emperor Domitian. And it looks like as though the city of Pergamum You know, the city itself, not the church, worked very hard to get on Rome's good side. You know, a lot of places did because Rome was so powerful. And that would mean if the emperor, if you're supposed to worship the emperor, and Rome expects you to do that and tells you you better do that, then anybody who would not worship the emperor could hurt that community as far as being favored by Rome... And so if Christians don't worship the emperor, they could get a lot of flack, a lot of pressure, not only from Rome, but also from their fellow citizens who don't want any trouble. <clears throat> but the, the, the church people in Pergamum stayed true to Christ when it would have been so much easier, so much less painful, so much less dangerous just to bend the knee to Rome. But they stayed true to Christ, even when a well-known Christian worker of God, a faithful worker of God, Antipas, was, you know, killed because of his faith in Christ. He was martyred. According to tradition, you know, it's not in the Bible, but it's, it's written from long ago, Antipas was slowly roasted to death 
in a bronze kettle. So if that is true, and so many things written way back are true, uh, you know, he was a very brave, faithful witness, and that was a very stark thing, I'm sure, to see or know about, yet they stayed true to Christ. So we have high praise for these Pergamon Christians who would not renounce the name of Christ, who held on to their faith even at the risk of their own lives. But, you know, I asked that question earlier. What is good is it to know that Jesus Christ has the ultimate double-edged sword and he's the one who's going <clears throat> to, you know, have all the authority and he's so much more powerful than Satan and his demons. I mean, there's no contest. Satan is powerful. Demons are powerful. But when Christ comes, they cower at his presence. They beg him not to do certain things. So Christ's power shines far above any evil power that exists. <clears throat> so, you know, we stay true to Christ... But we still may suffer to, to evil rulers. Antipas was a faithful servant of Christ. And, you know, tr tradition says that he was boiled alive, slowly. And last week, when Brian was leading our uh, communion service, he mentioned Polycarp, another early Christian, who was put to death for remaining true to Christ. So... And then, of course, there were many, many more. <clears throat> so what good is it to know that Christ is so much stronger than Satan when Satan gets to go around and kill people anyway? Well, here, here's what we're looking at. When we realize that Jesus Christ is truly the ultimate power of God and that Jesus Christ's power is endless, limitless, uh, completely powerful with no, with no boundaries. And that Satan's power and the demon's power is not even in the same realm as God's. Satan is a created being. God and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they are eternal beings. The Bible shows Satan in certain instances where he has to go get permission from God to do certain things. When we understand the true difference between the power and authority of God against the power and authority of any other being, even Satan, maybe the most powerful evil being, then we know that no matter what happens on this earth, even if Satan is able to cause a certain person's death or many people's death, like Antipas and Polycarp, or the 12 apostles, or those 13 Coptic Christians who were beheaded for their faith in Christ as they were kneeling by the water's edge. Even if Satan is able to do all that, even if he has a lot of power that he wields, and he can flex his muscles on this earth, we know that in the end, those who stand with Jesus Christ will be rewarded with eternal life and much more. 
We know that for sure because Christ has all the power. And it doesn't all show up here on the earth. It shows up in places, but it's going to show up in the end. He is the one with the sharp, double-edged sword. He will execute final justice, final righteous justice. And Satan will feel that justice hard. So these Pergamon Christians are being extolled by Jesus Christ for their faithfulness to him. Even when some were giving their lives in honor of their faith, they still stood strong. But now we're going to turn the corner. And even though Satan could not get them to uh, renounce the name of Christ, he had another angle he was going to try to get them with. And the angle that we're going to look at now hits real close to home for our society, our, our church in, in America. <clears throat> so look with me as I read verses 14 through 16. After he gives them this praise, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. When he says fight against them, he's talking about those who are promoting the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. <clears throat> so when we look back in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, we see that Balaam was a kind of like a diviner, a kind of like a pagan prophet. And during the days of Moses, when the Israelites were traveling towards the promised land, this king named Balak, he went to this, you know, not a, not a follower of God, but this guy that was known as a prophet, and he asked them, you know, the, the Israelites were marching toward the promised land, and they'd already conquered a couple of different kingdoms, and this king Balak, he was afraid that they would come in and conquer his kingdom, because they were so powerful, they were so numerous, and they'd already had a record of conquests. So he hired this Balaam to go and curse the Israelites. And so he would take him to a place where he could see the Israelites and he was supposed to throw out this curse. He was supposed to have this power of being able to hurt people and curse people. <clears throat> so seven times Balak takes this prophet Balaam and takes him to a place where he can see the Israelites and he's supposed to pronounce this curse on them. And, and I'm leaving a lot out. But as it turns out, every time he goes to speak a curse, he speaks a blessing on the Israelites. And Balak gets so upset and so frustrated because he wants him to curse these people. They can't come in and take over his kingdom. But he couldn't do it. Now, as it turns out, and this is where it comes into this passage, Balaam, the pagan prophet, 
did end up helping Balak. You have to kind of read through the different passages in the, in the Old Testament that are, that are connected. And he advised the king to send a bunch of Midianite women into the Israelite camp where they were camping, or they'd stopped, and to seduce the men that were in the camp. And these women did it. And these Israelite men were led by these women to eat food sacrificed to idols. <clears throat> there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and commit, committed sexual immorality. And it turned into this major event where all these men were having all these relations with these uh, Midianite women until finally, and then God brought a plague down, and people were dying, you know, were getting killed, until one man of God went in and killed this man who was just in the process of, with this woman, and then the plague stopped. So that's what it led to. And so, because they couldn't get the you know, in, in Pergamum, they couldn't get the um, men to just outright denounce Christ. So there were some with the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And what they did was they would just try to get people to compromise their faith. Not to, not to throw their faith out, but just take this one little step. And just take this other little step. And so... The Apostle John, or Jesus Christ, uh, telling John says that they're just like Balaam when they enticed the Israelites to, have, to go into sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. So what we have here is the Christians in Pergamum standing strong against the threats of persecution not willing to renounce the name of Christ, yet allowing themselves to be led like sheep to the slaughter into sexual immorality and engaging in eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, why would these Christians be so strong in one area that was so threatening, yet allow themselves to be led to the slaughter in this other area? Well, I believe that's what hits real, home, real close to home with us. You know, <clears throat> our nation was built on a belief in the God of the Bible. Now, the people who came over before the founders founded our nation, the people who came over there, they were strong, strong Christians. The founders, there were many Christians among them who had a belief in the God of the Bible. And they had a strong respect for the Bible. And most of them believed in a final judgment of God <clears throat> where everyone will have to give an account. And in fact, in some places, uh, they wouldn't let anybody take a governorship unless they believed in the second coming of Christ, the final judgment of God, because they said if there's, if there's nothing that people have to one day give an account to, they'll just do anything. 
And so they really wanted them to have a strong belief in God in order to be able to lead or to, to, to rule over people. But, you know, over the couple of centuries, you know, since our nation was founded, we have moved further and further away from God. And that's what happens in humanity. You know, we just tend to move further away from God unless we take action not to do that. Because our human, you know, we're weak as humans. And we really need God's help to keep us close to God. But as a nation, to a large degree, we've lost that deep respect for God and His Word. That's what they call in the Bible the fear of God. It doesn't mean that we cower before Him. It just means we have this deep reverence and respect. It's kind of, here's the way I see it. All right. Kind of an analogy. If you're driving and you see a cop car, your foot automatically goes to the, the, it lets off the the gas pedal or it goes towards the brake. You're not even thinking about it. (laughs) That's because we have a respect for those who have authority that they could do something if they catch us speeding. And we may not even be speeding. It's just kind of a, a natural act. But... There's a reverence for God that keeps us in a certain place. And when we lose that reverence, like our nation has kind of moved farther away from that, then things start going bad. How did it happen with the Israelites, with our nation? Step by step, right? It happens step by step. Something we would have never dreamed of way down the road doing. We got there step by step and now we're just fully involved in it. You know? It's the things we watch on TV. It's the things we see in the movies. You know, not that all TV and all movies are bad. But do we watch things that take us away from a belief in God? It's the things we do online, the things that can just kind of take us more toward immorality, where we used to have a conviction against it, but we just see it so happens so so much in our society, we just kind of taken in with the current. You know, we do things freely outside of the marriage covenant that are meant for the marriage covenant. Um there's so many things happening in the church that used to just happen outside the church. <clears throat> now, those outside the church are further along on the bad pathway, but we in the church, sometimes we just kind of like eventually join in. You know, today, many big-name Christians, and I've mentioned this a number of times before, are what we call deconstructing their faith. They're looking into their faith and kind of picking it apart piece by piece. So I, I don't believe this, and this couldn't have happened, and this, this, what, this isn't right. And they're ending up on the outside of church looking in. And then we, we've been hearing about these major ministry leaders that were so highly respected in the church getting caught in major sin. And having to step down and, and maybe ruin their whole organization. And in all these instances, 
we're getting drawn away from devotion to God and devotion to His Word, and we're becoming influenced by our surroundings. I often say about that, you know, it's just the ocean we're swimming in. And we just see it so often around us with so many people that we have to really work and guard ourselves from just jumping into the, to the, to the uh, current. And here's what Jesus said to the church at Pergamum. He said, some are holding to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And that teaching is compromising your faith. To join in just a little bit more and a little bit more with the culture. Now, not everything in our culture is wrong. You know, there are good things in our culture. But <clears throat> there are many things that we need to be guarding against. I noticed when I became a Christian as a young adult, and I, I hung around with a lot of different friends before I was a Christian, and they don't like you moving out of their group and becoming a Christian. It makes them feel like, wait, you saying we're bad? People really want you, if, if they know you're a Christian, they really want you to be with them so they feel good about themselves. And the people in Pergamum, you know, they wanted to be tight with Rome, the, the whole community did. So they would put a lot of pressure on these Christians to go ahead and just worship the emperor. Don't cause trouble for us. You know, we want to be good with Rome. But when they couldn't convince them to move that way, some with the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans would come on and just kind of get them moving a step at a time. Compromising their Christian morals to fit in with society. Look, everybody does it. <clears throat> you know, you're just old-fashioned. And haven't we seen that in our modern Western societies? Haven't we seen peoples from different Western nations who had a reputation of strong Christian influence? I mean, if you think back to the Western nations <clears throat> that we're a part of, and you think back into the history where they had Christian churches, Christian denominations, Christian mission organizations, Christian media, schools, hospitals, orphanages, all a part of the spreading the message of Christ. And we're seeing that diminish, aren't we? I mean, there's still things going on, but we're seeing it diminish. And wherever the message of Christ took hold, True justice flourished. You know, we've had recognized Christians during these times. But Satan has used the teachings of Balaam to erode the church's witness and influence. Satan has used the power of compromise to lead Christians down a pathway of mixed allegiance. Of taking this one step then the next step, then the next. And gradually we turn away from allegiance to Christ and his ways to some of Christ and some of the world's ways, but the world's ways aren't Christ's ways. And slowly and incrementally, 
we're led deeper and deeper into compromise. And it kind of it shows up in our families, our churches, our schools, our society, our government. We inch further and further into the world's ways and attitude and further away from God's ways. <clears throat> now, many of you know that in early America, universities were started in order to train preachers and missionaries. That was the beginning of our, our nation. And the ones that you hear about that are so liberal now, they were started as Christian institutions. And now, some of those places have atheist chaplains. I mean, right out, atheist chaplains. <laughs> They're not even hiding it. Uh, I, I, I want to say, you know, it's one of the top schools like Yale or Harvard, but <clears throat> they hired an atheist chaplain to be the chaplain of the school. And this, this person, I heard this person being interviewed, they said, well, we just want to be able to reach everybody. So, how do you get from training preachers and missionaries to hiring atheist chaplains? It's a small step-by-step, step, isn't it? It's a step-by-step step journey. And it's just being influenced, you know, by our media, by certain sitcoms, people we're hanging around with, things we stop doing, like being in the Word. If we just get farther and farther away from being in the Word regularly, being involved in church, serving the church. So how does Jesus end this letter? Verse 17, <clears throat> he says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. <clears throat> the hidden manna, you know, the manna was the bread from heaven. So he's talking about, he's, he's using hidden manna as something that we look forward to. It's, it's going to be a reward for us. Now, I'll mention what that is in a minute. But it goes along with this. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The white stones were used, <clears throat> you know, for different purposes to make some kind of announcement or invite somebody to some event. And so he's talking about your name on this white stone so you can come in. He's talking about the banquet of the Lamb. The wedding feast of the Lamb at the end of time that we're all moving toward. We're all in our faith moving toward when Christ comes back, sets up his kingdom, has that wedding banquet, and all who are connected to Christ, all who are one with Christ, will be invited to that wedding banquet. And we'll receive that white rock with that message on it. I don't know if they'll still be using white rocks then, but anyway. So, and, and the, the bread from heaven... It'll be a heavenly feast that we're invited to. And that's when we join into Christ's kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever in the righteousness of God by the one who holds the double-edged sword. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and just how precious it is to us and, and how much it tells us and how much hope it gives us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to stay strong in your word, in the fellowship, in our service to others and to the church. And Lord, may we not be led away step by step by Satan's ploys, by uh, the teachings of Balaam or the Nicolaitans. May we stay strong, not judgmental, not proud, but just humble and staying strong with what you want us to do so that we could point others to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.